You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Welcome to today's Transformative Podcast. My name is Irena Remestvensky. I'm the Managing Director of the Research Center for the History of Transformations here at the University of Vienna. And I'm very happy to welcome my new guest today, whose name is Irina Shiba from Ukraine. Irina Shiba is the former head of the foundation De Jure, a Ukrainian civil society organization created by experts and lawyers with the goal of promoting the rule of law and reforms in the sphere of justice in Ukraine. She's currently deputy head of the European Union Anti-Corruption Initiative, the EUACI, and for her fight against corruption in the courts and for the development of the child-friendly justice, she was included into the 30 under 30 ranking by the Kyiv Post in 2019 and by Forbes Ukraine twice in 2020 and 2021. Irina studied economics and law in Ukraine before she finished a joint master's degree program in economic analysis of law receiving a degree from the University of Bologna, the University of Rotterdam, and the Warsaw School of Economics. She's also well known in Ukraine as the anchor of a TV show, it's Chest in a Chest, which deals with corrupt judges in Ukraine. In 2021, she also received the Georgi Gongadze Award for being a person who, I quote, creates the future of Ukrainian media. She was praised by the award committee as the person with expert knowledge, but who is also able to explain in human language the challenges with Ukraine's judges and the corruption in the court system. So, Irina, I'm very happy to welcome you in our modest podcast here at the University of Vienna, and I'm quite excited to have you explain to me in human language, as they say, what it's all about with uh, Ukraine's corruption, especially in the court system. Let's start maybe because we're a historical research center. We're always interested in the historical background of what's going on. My first question to you is what were the main problems of the system of justice in Ukraine since it became independent in 1991? If you could somehow give us a very, very rough overview. Yeah, of course. Thank you for inviting me. I'm also here accompanied by my dog, Aki, that you can hear on the background, and he will be providing some additional comments. I'm very pleased to be here and to speak to your listeners about Ukraine. The more people know and understand what is Ukraine, how it's working, and what a long way it made since 1991, only through 31 years of its existence, it's just so impressive and so exciting. And judiciary is one of those cases, because when Ukraine just gained its independence, I think that for many years, the problem with judiciary was that the judges were not independent. And they were treating that more not like as a possibility to serve justice and to serve communities, but as an investment or possibility to gain some capital. So if you would want to make money in Ukraine, you would not go into business, but you would become a judge because the judge could gain a lot of profit with making decisions in the favor of one or another business. Obviously, every government also and every power tried to have their lights in judiciary because that would allow them to also have possibilities or decisions in their favor of their parties during elections or during their time in power. And we saw it especially in the most ugly way during the Yanukovych ruling, when the Constitutional Court of Ukraine kind of helped him to give even more power and create his authoritarian regime. 
We also saw how with the court decisions, he and his cronies gained more assets and more power in Ukraine. The problem with that was the selection procedure that the judges were appointed politically. There was no proper competitions or integrity checks introduced. And this is what we managed to change significantly in the last five years. So we started with the competition to the Supreme Court, where the first integrity checks were introduced. But then we also established a committee with the international participants or international experts to select high anti-corruption court judges to have even higher threshold for checking integrity of judges who would decide on the cases of top corruption in Ukraine. Then recently, over the last year, we started the significant reform of judicial governance bodies because in the end, it's those HR, let's say, departments of the the judiciary, uh, which is High Qualification Commission of Judges in Ukraine and High Council of Justice, which decides on the disciplinary misconducts of judges. The key bodies that ensure integrity of judiciary in its independence to make sure that it is happening and they're doing their job proper. It's not enough only to vet judges. We also need to analyze integrity of those judicial council members. Even during the escalation of war, we still see that judicial reform is ongoing and the Ethics Council is assessing the integrity of members of High Council of Justice and the competition for High Qualification Commission of Judges in Ukraine is starting right now. These are two most important bodies in judicial system of Ukraine and without their reform and without ensuring their integrity, it would be impossible to ensure integrity of the whole judiciary. When we're talking about the challenge in front of you and your team, and I mean both your teams, your former team with the EURA and your current team with the European Union project, this challenge being to overcome widespread corruption in the courts, how big is that challenge? Does, for example, the Transparency International's very bad ranking of Ukraine give us a realistic picture of the gravity of the situation? The Transparency International assessments it usually also gives a perspective of the situation, but cannot be 100% accurate about what's going on exactly, because a lot of these things are behind the scenes. So you don't have evidence, even though there is investigation still ongoing, but you cannot always detect all of the problems. However, also, you know, when at some point when you see more investigation going on, more of these things being public and available in media than they were before, for example, during the Yanukovych time, it also might seem that situation of corruption got worse just because you got more information and more of these crimes started to be visible and the investigation started. So because people didn't hear before that problems that might have thought that there is no problem, but then, you know, there's a lot of information. So in the media, in the press and discussion, and then people think that situation is worse. But I think as a person who worked on the judicial reform and was a judicial system for quite some time during my career, I would say the situation definitely improved. For the last few years, at least, judges started to feel that there is a public attention, that they can be found liable, that they can be dismissed from their positions. And we also saw many verdicts of the High Anti-Corruption Court of Ukraine, which convicted um, officials, including judges, for taking bribes or committing other corruption offenses. In the end, we see that there is a liability and that people will be held accountable for their misconduct. It changes their behavior. And we see that also experience of having those independent competitions, it creates a symbol or a signal for the lawyers that you can make your career based on your merits, but not based on your contacts and the money that you have. And it is important for you to have a good reputation high level of integrity to be possible to build political or judicial career in Ukraine.
So on one side, you have to put pressure on the state to appoint better judges. On the other hand, you have to put pressure on the corrupt judges to change their behaviors or leave their positions. You also have to educate the population. Are these kind of the main directions of your work? And how do you do all of this as a civil society organization, as an NGO? At the moment, I'm the deputy head of the EU Anti-Corruption Initiative, and it's not the civil society organization, it's International Technical Assistance Program funded by the EU and Denmark. So our job is to support those who actually do the anti-corruption work and help them be strong, be heard, and not be pressured. Because actually for every institution, also judges, but also anti-corruption agencies, they should have a high level of protection to make sure that no pressure from corrupt politician or oligarch can alter their decisions and make their decision less just and fair. That's important to remember. And then civil society is not the one to put pressure, but civil society is the one to watchdog and monitor how efficient and transparent or the government is working, disclose information about some misconducts or some negative decisions and call to actions and demand the action that would be in favor of the citizens and in line with the constitution. Because there is a thin line between, you know, the advocacy, which is advocacy for the work, but also the negative pressure on a judge on, or on a state official. What is helping civil society in Ukraine to be very effective? I would say it's a high level of professionalization. For many civil society agents or actors, they're not treating this as just the activism. They're doing it after the regular work, but they actually have established many think tanks, analytical centers, uh, but also just civil society organization that they work at least from eight till six, but sometimes till eight, 10 or 11 at the evening. These organization with the support of international and technical assistance programs, but also in cooperation and coalitions with different other actors, they manage to provide a high quality analysis. They work with media to disclose this information and communicate it. And they work with government to help them make better decisions. You already named some of the successes that you were able to reach with your past and your current team. I was wondering, you find out, for example, that this specific judge is corrupt. How does the process of trying to change the situation for a specific case look like? In terms of the judge, it's in the line of investigation of NABU. So I think one of the achievements of civil society and technical assistance projects was also kind of helping Ukraine to establish anti-corruption institution like NABU that effectively investigates these cases, but then they also that... Uh, being prosecuted by the Special Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office and being considered by High Anti-Corruption Court of Ukraine. So many donors, international partners of Ukraine, also, of course, the members of the parliament and the government with the support and sometimes active advocacy from civil society side, they help over the last few years to establish this chain of anti-corruption institutions that help to prosecute and consider cases of top-level officials including judges. And we saw quite many decisions already, which have been made by uh, quite short, uh, relatively in more reasonable uh, terms. I think this is kind of a big achievement not to go case by case and try to bring to justice every corrupt official separately, because then you need to substitute the role of the institutions yourself, and you will never have this capacity to go after all official and monitor their work, but try to build sustainable institutions and capacity of the state institutions to build this work. 
Of course, civil society is a better place to do, especially when it comes to social services or some grassroots activism helps to mobilize resources faster and analyze the needs of the people better. But in terms of prosecution and justice system, I think it's definitely, first of all, the role of the government and the civil society or technical project assistants like us should help the government to build stronger independent institutions that provide justice to people. Let's talk a little bit about how this whole situation with rampant corruption in the courts could happen in Ukraine. Why is it consistent still, although there are many successes, as you mentioned? To me, it seems obvious that everyone would want to be in a country that has fair courts, fair professional judges, a chance to get retribution in the situation where you became a victim of a crime. But there are seemingly still so many Ukrainians who probably do not want this or they somehow enjoy the status quo. They do not want to see changes or reforms. What is your take? And I mean, I understand you're not a psychologist, but what is your take on some of the kind of the worldviews, values, maybe even traumas that stand in the way of Ukrainians' way of establishing the rule of law or improving the rule of law in the country? I think one of the problems here is also related to the economic development and the level of poverty that we still see because some people are forced to engage in corrupt activities not because of lack of their integrity or they're willing to support the status quo because they feel that they don't have any other choice, that they felt and somehow that they would not get the treatment for their kid if they not pay a doctor a bribe or they would not have a possibility to get the job or stay at the job if they don't bribe someone. So I think it's also related to a communist past when, you know, when the resources were really scarce, but distributed not in the fairy tale way that the communist regime would, would like us to believe. But I think it's very unfair to say that Ukrainians are a corrupt country or corrupt nation that wants to have the situation like that. I think we quite many times and through two revolutions and a long war already shown that we want to have a better future, more democratic institutions and high level of rule of law. This is what was Maidan revolution or Orange Revolution was about. That was also what it was Revolution of Dignity about. It was not just about being a member of the UN traveling without borders, but it was about having a higher standard of life, uh, democratic institutions standing out to unfair election process or to authoritarian regime of Yanukovych. And now we once again defending our right to be independent country, but also to be a democratic country. Because if you hear the speech of Putin from February 23, what he was not happy about is that Ukraine is making amazing progress in judicial reform and anti-corruption reform. And he specifically named High Anti-Corruption Court and High Council of Justice that we talked through this podcast, but also many other successful things that were made and where we um, progressed as a country. Because for Putin, it is threatening to have a well-developed democratic country besides him, because this is also challenges his regime. This is why he was also, besides many crazy things or crazy reasons that are obviously in his hands, that he escalated this war against Ukraine. Can we talk a bit about the corruption just before and in times of war? How do you see the situation with corruption changing in the face of the full-blown, full-scale aggression of the Russian Federation and its people against Ukraine? What are some of the war-specific problems connected with corruption? I think that, first of all, a fight against corruption becomes even more important than it was before, even though some might say that it's not on the top of agenda. But why we see that Russia is failing quite sometimes because of their corruption in their defense sector. 
and that some lots of money were stolen from the budget that was supposed to go for uh, to repair some guns or some items, but they never did it. So to have a possibility to fight back, Ukraine also needs to have a strong institutions, a strong army and use money to the most effective way it can. Of course, I would be too kind of optimistic or unfair to say that definitely there is no corruption and everything stopped, although we see how united society is at the moment and how they also fighting not just against Russia, but also for the better future. And I would say that the tolerance to corruption at this moment is much lower even than we had before 24th of February. Because now it's also the cost that we're paying for that. It's not just about the money, but it's also in people's lives and these deaths that, that we have. So nobody will tolerate a corruption as they would use before. But it would be, again, unfair or too optimistic to say that there is at all non-corruption. The war, like every crisis, creates a shortage of resources and many problems and challenges for people's survival. And Ukraine is not an exception. So it's not because of Ukraine is corrupt, but because this is what is happening in every country that we see during the war, but also during the reconstruction process, that we need to be cautious about how the funds are being spent and that they are not misused. Since you are currently working for an EU initiative, I'm also wondering how far along is Ukraine in the attempts of harmonizing basically the laws or maybe also the practices against corruption to the EU standard? For example, in the decision of the EU on the candidacy status uh, for Ukraine, there are a few steps that Ukraine has to take to keep this candidate status, and one of them specifically dedicated to anti-corruption, which is asking Ukraine to finalize the competition or selection process for Sapohead. Uh, check. Here, this step was already completed just recently. And another one is to conduct the merit-based selection process for uh, Nabuhead, National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine, and also streamline the investigation top-level corruption cases. So these at least three things that Ukraine needs to conduct as soon as possible to show also to EU that the country is serious about its anti-corruption aspiration and EU aspiration among other uh, points on the list. But of course, after that, Ukraine will enter into a negotiation process with the EU and there will be a whole new list of uh, actions and plans and directives that need to be implemented. So that's a long process that might take up to seven, ten years and, and it's in the best case scenario. So it's hard to list all of them. But at least for the moment, we have three concrete things that Ukraine needs to conduct. This week, the NABU Selection Committee, again, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine, Committee for the Selection of the Head of this Institution has started at work. And so international community will be looking attentively to the selection process. We expect that with all the support and attention from civil society, we will have a new head with a high level of integrity selected uh, through transparent and merit-based competition. And do I understand correctly that the European Union expects Ukraine to be pushing those anti-corruption reforms also during the war, so not cutting any slack, not waiting until the war ends, not waiting until the reconstruction starts. Is that a correct impression? Uh, yes, it is. And it was mentioned many times that also for Ukraine to get a support in the recovery process and that funds for the recovery, it will also will be linked to anti-corruption reforms and that you, but also many other countries, they need to be sure that this money will not be misused. So they're expecting that Ukraine to continue with the anti-corruption reform, judicial reform and many others. Irina, this was very interesting. I would really like to ask a personal question, if I may, for the end of our podcast. I was really wondering when I followed you on Facebook for many years before we personally met, before we did this podcast, I was always wondering 
First of all, how did you decide to become an anti-corruption activist? What were your personal reasons? And also connected to that, who do you look up to in your fight against corruption? Who are your personal heroes in this fight? I would not say that it was a decision I need to make. It was somehow natural or that I just couldn't do anything else. I'm a lawyer by training. My last year of law school was just in the middle of the revolution of dignity. So for like many Ukrainians, I myself wanted to my career be related to something meaningful for the future of Ukraine and to help Ukraine develop as a democratic country. And then, as you mentioned in the beginning, I studied in many EU universities and was provided by the grant and support from the EU European Commission for my studies. And I think this period and this experience inspired me so much. It was a, you know, a life-changing experience when you look how these things can be and you want that in your home country, in your home city, for your people, not just to go on a trip and enjoy those level of democratic freedoms and uh, also nice architecture and infrastructure that you get this one of the side effects of that but in Vienna or in Paris, but also have that in Kiev, Lviv, Nikopol, Mariupol, Chervonohrad and many other beautiful cities of Ukraine. So that's, I think, was one of my motivation to serve to the community, to help Ukraine be better and to be proud of my country. And now I'm very proud of my country and I'm being inspired by every single citizen at the moment who is fighting against Russian aggression or is doing at least something to help Ukraine win this war. So we know it's not so hard to find somebody to inspire you in Ukraine these days because there are so many amazing people that helping each other at this moment, helping their country and doing such a great job. Irina, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me from a war-torn country, from a capital that is still under attack. Thank you, Irina. It was five missile attacks last night that I woke up from, but it was yesterday during Independence Day, we had unfortunately the highest rate of air alerts that we saw since war. And it's very disturbing and it's very hard to, to work if you need to go to the bomb shelter every time or you can go to the shop to buy food because everything is closed and just very stressful and exhausting. Yeah, but I'm always happy to talk to you and thank you for inviting me. It is amazing that you're staying in Kiev through all of this, continuing to work on your anti-corruption project. Thank you so much for talking to us and to our listeners. You have been listening to the transformative podcast produced by Red Set in Vienna.